If you, uh, if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles, you can, but the problem with that is, is I'm going to have you flipping all over the page, all over the place, so uh, why don't you hold off on that for a second. Let me introduce myself. My name is Brian Irby. Uh, I am uh, the director of the youth stuff here at Faith Community Church. I'm a, a full-time counselor and teacher at Cherokee Christian School, so that's where I work uh, most of the time. And uh, it's, it's a, a blessing and honor to do both of those things because uh, consistently, um, I, uh, in my jobs, I'm, I'm getting paid and hired to tell people the word of God, to counsel people uh, biblically, and to share the gospel with uh, children, with parents and adults, with the youth here. And so uh, it's neat. And so tonight, I have the chance to do that with you guys. And since uh, I've been talking about something over at Cherokee, and it's on my heart, I'm going to share something with you guys tonight, and uh, basically we're going to talk about uh, the new covenant and the church, and the relationship the church has with the new covenant, and what is going on, and, and what does that mean for us, uh, and, and the purpose is, Lord willing, to, to bring us to a place of humility, uh, to give us a better understanding um, for us to, to be able to, to understand uh, what's coming, what's ahead, what our purpose is here now, and uh, what the Lord is doing in 2014 through us and uh, through, through the worldwide church. And we just saw the church in Peru. We support missionaries in Croatia and in Italy. And, and there's, there's people all over the world that are part of this thing we call the church. Um, so tonight we're going to look at the new covenant and the church. If you want to go ahead and open your Bibles, you can. The first place we're going to look at is Jeremiah 31. So if you want to open to Jeremiah 31, you can. Uh, and while you're doing that, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, the new covenant. And, and I figured the, the best place to start if we're going to talk about the new covenant and the relationship to the church and all this different stuff is first explain what a covenant is. Now, uh, a lot of you may already have an understanding of the covenants in the Bible, but then again, some people may be like, what in the world is a covenant? This is not part of our everyday language. We don't go around making covenants with people anymore. The only thing that usually in, in our vernacular that we call a covenant relationship or something like that would be marriage. Uh, marriage is a covenant relationship, and it's a good example of what a covenant is and what a covenant means. The, 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 whoop. the easy way to explain it <laughs> is uh, that's here for a reason. I've been sick as a dog. I got cough drops in one pocket, and I got my water right here, so we'll see if we make it through this. Mm. But uh, uh, a covenant is basically... <laughs> A covenant is a, legal, a legally binding promise. It's an agreement, it's a contract, it's an oath, it's a pledge. Those are better words for us to understand, like I said, in our everyday uh, vernacular, what, these, what a covenant is. And, and covenants are given all the time in the Bible. Uh, uh, many times covenants are, are contracts or agreements between two parties. In the Old Testament, in Genesis, we see uh, covenants used a lot between Abimelech, the leader of the Philistines, and Abraham. They, uh, they made a covenant with one another. That Abraham was to deal kindly with Abimelech's people and, and while he was sojourning in their land, not to, to mess with his people uh, because Abraham was powerful and, and gaining more prestige in the land that he was kind of dwelling in. And Abimelech's people were no longer to mess with Abraham's stuff. Somebody had been filling in his wells. He's saying, you guys are doing this. Abimelech and Abraham make a covenant. Hey, I'm not going to mess with you. You don't mess with us. Let's live in peace. It was, it was a covenant agreement. It was a binding oath that both of them legally made so that they are basically protected from one another and, and live in peace. Laban and Jacob made a covenant like this later on uh, where Jacob basically says, you don't cross this line and come and mess with me. And, and Laban says, well, you better take care of my, my girls and all my stuff. And Jacob's like, okay. And Laban's like, okay. And they shook on it made an agreement. We still do this sort of stuff now. When we buy, sell cars, do things like that. It's just a, a legally binding agreement that you're going to do something and you're going to do something. It's a covenant agreement. See, the problem, though, with man-made covenants is man breaks covenants. And so men break covenants, but there's one person that does not break covenants that does everything that he says he's going to do, and that's God. And there are covenants in the Bible that God makes with mankind in general and with the nation of Israel where he enters into these, these oaths, these promises. He swears he will do something, and, and, you know, everything God says he'll do. But there's, there's six times in the Bible where he actually says, I am going to make a covenant to do this, okay? So we're not talking about all the different times God says he's going to do something. I'm going to pour out judgment on this nation. I'm going to do this. I mean, God always does what he says he's going to do. He's always faithful. He makes lots of promises. There's lots of things like that in the Bible. But we're talking about the covenants that God makes with mankind uh, and, and with his nation Israel. Like I said, there's six times in the Bible God makes these covenants with mankind or with Israel. Um, and uh, we name these covenants after the people he was talking to. When he says these things, for instance, when Noah got off the boat and all the animals are going free and everything, God makes a covenant 
with, with all living creatures. And we call this the Noahic covenant. He said, I will never flood the earth again on account of man's sin. Gave the rainbows, the sign of the covenant, all that stuff. God's not going to do that again. And he's sworn uh, by an oath that he won't do it again. It brings emphasis. It, bring, it highlights it, that, that God means this. And, and he draws our attention to that situation. He does the same. Abraham, he says, uh, I'm going to give you uh, this piece of land, even gives him the size of the land. I'm going to make a nation out of you. All the earth will be blessed by your descendants. And he makes a covenant with Abraham and his descendants. He makes a covenant with the Israelites on Mount Sinai. We call it the Mosaic Covenant because Moses was up on the mountain talking to him. For 40 days, 40 nights, gives him the Ten Commandments, sets Israel apart as his own little nation, his own possession, his kingdom of priests, his holy nation set apart from all other nations. It was a covenant God made with the nation of Israel. Uh, there's a priestly covenant he made with Phineas after Phineas in Numbers 25 uh, defended the Lord's uh, name and defended what God wanted at that time when Israel was in sin on the plains of Moab. God made a covenant with Phineas and his descendants. They would have a priest in the temple forever before him. He made a covenant with David. This king, throne, and, and uh, house would last forever. The descendant of David would always sit on the throne. And then he made a new covenant. And that's what we want to talk about tonight. These are the times where God in the Bible has said, I am making a covenant. And through these covenants, we, we see things. And again, this is a very quick overview. This is not an in-depth, comprehensive study of the covenants in the Bible. But what we see in these covenants is God reveals things to us about mankind's uh, redemption from sin, about the Messiah who is coming, about his coming kingdom, and his plans. It basically reveals what God is doing with this, this creation and, and how he's going about doing it. God has revealed those things to us, and he's given us these covenant promises that we can hang on to these truths. I think a lot of times, uh, like I said, you know, with man-made covenants and because of our own sin nature, you know, we break covenants. We're not faithful to our word or we'll be faithful to it part way. And, and a lot of times I just, I think these covenants are given really because of our lack of faith and our lack of trust uh, in him. Because there, there are times, bleak, bleak times, even right now, where it looks like, is he really going to be faithful to what he said and to the extent that he said it? And uh, that's why he gives these oaths, these covenants, so we can know without a shadow of a doubt, no matter what it looks like, no matter what people are saying, God will do these things, and he'll do them exactly like he said. Um, all these covenants, if you look at them in the Bible, have immediate and future fulfillment. And I think God does that, again, for a reason. I mean, one, to show you, hey, I'm going to do what I said, and he kind of gives you a little taste, uh, but the fulfillment of it, the completion of it, has not yet been seen in any of these covenants that we just talked about, uh, in any of these, these unconditional covenants, the Abrahamic, priestly, Davidic, all this different stuff, and we're going to talk about that in a second, including the new. Um, these covenants that we're going to look at, and especially, uh, well, all, all the covenants except for one, um, are unconditional. Now, what that means is they're one-sided, that God made these covenants with mankind. They're not conditioned on anything that, that we need to do. Like, like we said, when these agreements that we make, like if I go buy a car, and I say, well, I'm going to buy a car. I'm going to pay you a certain amount of money. You're going to give me the car. We signed the document. I, if I give him the money, he's got to give me the car, right? Or if he gives me the car, I have to give him the money. That's the way that, that binding agreement works. Well, with these covenants God has made with mankind, he said, I'm going to do this. It doesn't matter what you're going to do. This is just what I'm going to do. When he entered that covenant with Abraham, when he entered the covenant with David, when he made this new covenant, it's things that God has sworn he is going to do, not based on any any condition that you or I or Abraham or David or Phineas or any of these guys had to, uh, had to uphold, God's going to do what he says he's going to do. And the other thing you need to see about these covenants, they're everlasting. They're all called perpetual, eternal, everlasting, never-ending covenants. Like I said, the only one that's not an unconditional covenant is that Mosaic covenant when they're on Mount Sinai, gives them the Ten Commandments, makes Israel his holy nation, a kingdom of priests, and all of that stuff. But that's another sermon for another day. Tonight, we want to look at the new covenant. All right, the new covenant. What is this new covenant? When was it given? And what does it mean to you and I as the church? Now, the, the, when the new covenant was given, if you're already in Jeremiah, I, I don't know if I told you what chapter, Jeremiah 31. But uh, if you read the book of Jeremiah and you know what's happening in the history of Israel at that time, it's a bleak, bleak time in the history of Israel. In fact, two prophets give this new covenant uh, or just lay it out where God says, I'm going to make a new covenant. Moses talked about it back in Deuteronomy. Uh, there's, there's snippets of it in Isaiah. It's not like God hasn't given hints before, but Jeremiah and Ezekiel are the ones that just come out and say it. I'm going to make a new covenant, and, and, and God says these things, and he says it at the bleakest time in the history of, of the nation of Israel. Right before Nebuchadnezzar's coming in to, to wipe out the nation, to destroy the temple, to, to burn down the palace, tear down the walls, burn down all the houses, and, and, and uh, send all the, the Israelites captive to, uh, or all the people of Judah captive back to Babylon, 
right before it looks like all the covenant promises that he's sworn to Abraham and to David and the priestly covenant to Phinehas and his descendants, all those things, it looks like those have been completely forgotten, right? God makes this new covenant, and he, he in fact, in the, in the process of making this new covenant, brings up all these other covenants that he's made to remind the Israelites, I have not forgotten what I've said. I'm always faithful to my word, no matter what, no matter what you've done, and I will do everything I've said. So, right before... Uh, Israel is wiped out. He assures them he has not forgotten. God will do everything he says, and he makes a new covenant. And this is what he says in Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. Maybe go to verse 37. We'll see. He says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them uh, by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, speaking of the Mosaic covenant. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now those words would have stung, because those are the same words that he already spoke to them in the Mosaic covenant when he said that they were a nation set apart for him. He keeps going and says, here, here's some more conditions of this new covenant. They will, they will not teach again, each man his neighbor or each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Um, and, and like I said, if you just keep reading, he, just, he basically says, I mean, Israel will always be a nation before him. He will never permanently cast them away. All the promises he's sworn before, he's still saying he's going to do them all. But he's making this new covenant where he says, I'm going to write my word on their heart and put my law within them, and I'll forgive their sins. If you want to flip over to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36 is Ezekiel saying the same thing. But now Ezekiel was a prophet to the Babylonian captives, okay? Jeremiah was in Jerusalem. He was on the receiving end of the judgment. As Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians are coming in to wipe everything out, Jeremiah is there with the, the people that are left, the people that don't uh, surrender to the Babylonians, the ones that stand the, their ground to the end, even when the Lord's told them to surrender. Jeremiah is a bleak and dark book. It's a sad book. And he's with the people that are rebellious to the end. Ezekiel, on the other hand, is a, is a very much more upbeat book. It's a very much more hopeful book. It's, it's got a lot more about the future and stuff like that because this is speaking to the remnant, to the ones who have surrendered, to the ones that God is going to bring back into the land 70 years later and, and after that. And Ezekiel saying the same thing to the Babylonian captives, uh, just different terminology, says this in Ezekiel 36. Verses 22 to 31. He says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, if it, uh, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Uh, then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. When I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. And then I will sprinkle you with clean water and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your filthiness and from all of your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I give to your forefathers, so that you will be my people, I will be your God. And verse 33 says, thus says the Lord God, on that day I will cleanse you from all your iniquities. And he continues on after that to tell them more and more about what all happens in that day. He gathers them back to the land, he makes them a nation, he gives them the land, they're exalted above all the different nations, they become a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, the things that he had called them to be a long time ago. So this is the new covenant. When we talk about the new covenant, that is the new covenant. That's what God said when he proclaimed the new covenant through Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Um, he made two main promises to the house of Israel. And the, the easy way I, I tell the kids at school is he, say, he promised that he would forgive sin and put his spirit within. I mean, that's the easy way to think about it. I will forgive sin. I'll write my word. I will put my law. I will put my spirit within you. Now, the implications that come with that are amazing. I mean, uh, if you keep reading in Jeremiah all the way through 33 or in Ezekiel or in Isaiah, I mean, it's not only they're forgiven of sin, they have the Spirit of God within them. They never sin again. 
they never go astray again. There is no more idolatry. They follow him perfectly. They know him just like they, uh, they are fully known by him. I mean, they are completely obedient, blameless, righteous, set apart, uh, truly a holy nation unto God, exalted above all nations where all kings come before the one king who sits on the throne of David and bow down before him. There's peace on earth. I mean, it gets better and better and better if you just keep reading in the Old Testament. So all that being said, this is a covenant the Israelites are waiting for. This is a good covenant. Uh, where God is going to forgive their sins, not based on a condition like with the Mosaic Covenant. If you obey, I will bless you. If you disobey, I'll curse you. But God is going to do this. It's an unconditional, everlasting covenant made to the house of Israel. Israel's excited, and then they're gone. God wipes them out. <laughs> they're, they're completely gone, wiped out of the land, dispersed, sent to Babylon. A remnant comes back 70 years later. They start rebuilding the city, reestablishing the nation of Israel, but it's nothing. Nothing like God promised, nothing like it was in the past. They have a temple but the, the ark is not there, and the Spirit of God is not in it like it was in the past where the God uh, stayed in the temple. Uh, they, they, they don't even have a king. They have a governor. Uh, but it's, it's not the Israel that God swore would last before him forever. Um, and when it comes to this new covenant, God was silent about it for 600 years. There was no more, and the covenant starts now, or the covenant starts now. For 600 years, the Israelites were probably going, when is this new covenant thing happening? I mean, God said he was going to do this, and there's not another mention of this new covenant until the night of his betrayal, Jesus took a cup of wine. He said to his disciples in Luke 22, 20, this cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. And then in Matthew 28, 27 to 28, when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What God swore 600 years before happens tomorrow, Jesus is saying. When I die on that cross, through my death, this new covenant thing begins. That's what Jesus was saying. The apostles would have heard that. They would have understood what was going on. They would have been very excited. At the same time, completely perplexed that their Messiah, that the King, the Son of David, was going to die and all this stuff. There's a lot going on in their minds. That's another sermon, too. But here we go. 600 years later, Jesus says something about it. From that point forward, you begin to see the effects of this new covenant thing, right? In Acts, you see the Holy Spirit indwelling people over and over and over. They were filled with the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. They were speaking in tongues. They were doing these miraculous things. Uh, All of the rest of of, uh, the epistles are about the forgiveness of sins, about you being dead, made alive, about uh, Christ dying on the cross, and we're forgiven of our sins. The church is proclaiming to take part of these new covenant promises. I mean, that's what we say. When we say we're saved, two of the main things that we're saying uh, are, are new covenant promises, that we are forgiven of sin and that we have the Spirit of God dwelling in our hearts. Those are new covenant promises. New covenant promises made to Israel. New covenant promises made to Israel. Israel had been waiting forever for these things. Like I told you, wrapped up in them was not only forgiveness of sins and the Spirit within, like you and I say we experience it now, but something way bigger, way more. When all the other covenants come to fruition and they see the king sitting on the throne that sin is done away with, they follow him completely. They're blameless and set apart, a holy and righteous nation. But Israel has not seen that, right? To this day in 2014, Israel has not seen that nor any of the other covenants to their fullness. I mean, they, they saw glimpses of it in the past, but that was the best. Never, never was any of those covenants completely fulfilled the way God said they would be. And in fact, right now, it's not Israel, but the church that's claiming to have experienced the forgiveness of sins and the spirit within. So we, non-Israelites, Gentiles in the flesh, we are proclaiming new covenant promises for ourselves. We, the church, are, pr- are proclaiming that we are partakers of the promises of the new covenant. We are partakers of the forgiveness of sin. We have his spirit dwelling in our hearts. So why? Why are we as the church, we as Gentiles, saying that we have something that he swore he was going to give to Israel and Judah a long time ago? Now, I mean, like I said, some of you are like, well, duh. But it's a good question to ask because it's not necessarily duh about it, and, 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 and a lot of questions arise. What is this church thing? Okay, so we've explained this new covenant. Now let's talk about the church, all right? As we're talking about the church, I'm going to look in Ephesians 2. If you want to flip there, you can go ahead and flip over to Ephesians 2. And while you're doing that, I just want to tell you a little bit about the church. Uh, Darby sang a bunch of songs about the church. It was really good. Thank you. Uh, and in all of those songs, though, we don't think about a lot of things, a lot of implications of the church. First and foremost, there is no church in the Old Testament. You may know that. You may, may not know that. There's no church in the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus only mentions the church by name twice in Matthew 16 and 18. Um, but then from Acts 5 to Revelation 3, the church is mentioned over and over and over and over 109 times 
Uh, I mean, just by name. Other than that, I mean, it's mentioned many other times on, on how to conduct it and stuff like that. Luke, Paul, John, James, and Peter tell us tons of stuff about the church. Um, they, they tell us uh, when and how it began. They tell us how it should be governed, uh, how to distinguish between those who are truly in the church and those who are pretending to be in the church. They, I mean, everything from, from Acts 5 to, to Revelation 3, I guess you could even say Acts 2 to Revelation 3, is church-oriented, okay? And we, in 2014, live in the church age. I mean, we're here tonight as the church, experiencing part of this church thing. Um, we just, like I said, heard about a church in another country. The church is all over the place. But, yeah, just a little uh, tidbit, if you want to know this, Revelation 4 to Revelation 22, 9, the church is not mentioned at all. I don't know if you knew that, but that's, that's food for thought. Uh, during the end, end times, I mean, it's all about Israel and Jerusalem again, but we'll, that's another sermon too. So, anyway. <laughs> so, what is God doing? <laughs> I'll tell you what I'm doing. I'm, I'm just throwing out all these different sermons that you need to go listen to next. What is God doing? What is God doing right now with the church and this whole new covenant thing? Why are we saying we are partakers? And I think one of the best definitions and explanations of what God is doing at this current time is given in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 gives us some really good insight into what the Lord is doing back in 60 AD when this was written, all the way up until 2014 when you and I are sitting here studying this and looking at it. So let's look at uh, Ephesians 2. In this, uh, Paul is, is talking to, uh, to Gentiles in Asia Minor who are part of the church, and, and he says this. Now, I should probably leave out verses 1 through 10, but we're going to say them real quick just because they're awesome. He says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, too, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as a rest. So the, the reason we have to start there, and I just want to throw that out there, is just because it puts you in a very humble place, right? I mean, we're talking to Gentiles, first and foremost. And he's saying, I mean, just to begin with, we were dead in our sin. You got nothing in and of yourself that could ever even get you to God, reconcile you to him. Uh, you're dead. That's your spiritual state. And so you're hopeless. You're, you're, you're without a possibility of salvation unless something happens to you. On top of that, uh, if you do look at your actions and your participation in this world, we're also guilty that, that we uh, formally walked, uh, talking to Christians again, uh, which means practice, habitually do something according to the course of this world. Um, the prince of the power of the air, Satan, the, the, the spirit of the Antichrist, now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, too, we formerly lived, indulging in our desires and the lust of the flesh, basically just serving ourselves, doing what we want, continually uh, at odds with enemies of uh, and against God, like Paul uh, describes in Romans. So all of us are without the ability to be saved and are actively engaged in evil and working against God uh, and, and, and his truths, his promises, uh, his plans. But God, those are the two of the most awesome words in the Bible. I love when Paul does this. There's where you are, and God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. All right? So God, because he has overabounding mercy and overabounding love and loved us, and then he brings it back home even when we were dead in our transgressions. God made us alive together with Jesus Christ, and he says, by grace you have been saved. So by God's mercy and by God's love and by God's grace, God did something when we had no ability in, of our, in and of ourselves to do anything, and we're actually actively engaged against him. By his grace, love, and mercy, he made us alive. He breathed life into us um, through his son, Jesus Christ, and raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So not only are you made alive, but you are rewarded, you are exalted, you are exalted with Christ, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace we have been saved through faith, and that's not of ourselves. I mean, I love that part. It's like, he's like by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's like the first, like, ah, see, through faith. And he says, but that's not even of yourselves. I mean, even the faith that we have is faith that he gives us to have, faith to give back to him so that we can believe in him, if that makes sense. So, even our faith is by his grace, and that's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's the bottom line right there. This salvation that God gives, this freedom from sin and all this stuff, is totally by God's grace, by God's love, by God's mercy. Apart from that, we are hopeless. That's a good place to start. That's why I wanted to start there. It puts us in a place of humility. And then even this, I like this part too. For we are all workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So even the good works that we do were things that God foreordained before the foundation of the world when he made out his whole plan of the coming of the Messiah, the redemption of mankind, and sin being done away with. They're all there. And he crafts you, makes you, breathes life into you, puts you there, and says, do these things. And you do those good works, and which are part of his awesome plan, which brings about the culmination of, of, of all of these covenants. That's just neat. So even our good works, we have nothing to boast in and of ourselves. They are there by his grace and his love and his mercy, and he lets us walk in them. That's where we stand. That is awesome. But what about the church? What about these Gentiles and all this stuff we've been talking about in this new covenant promise? This is where uh, he explains that. All that being said, he says this in verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you... The Gentiles in the flesh, so we're speaking to probably everybody in this room. I don't know if anybody here is full-blooded Jewish. Your mom and dad were Jewish, and their parents were Jewish, and you can trace your lineage all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I mean, if that's the case, then woohoo! But uh, we're talking about everybody else here. (laughs) Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, so the Jews looking at the Gentiles saying they're the uncircumcised, they're outside of the covenants, they're not part of this, which is performed by the flesh, by human hands. Remember that you were, at that time, back in the day, separate from Christ, separate from the Messiah, not part of this, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. All those covenants we talked about, that was not for you. That was not said to you. You were excluded from that stuff, not part of Israel, not sons of Abraham, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Man, if you thought the first hole was deep, that you were dead in your sin, that you were at enmity with God and all that stuff. On top of that, you're a Gentile. You're outside the covenants. You weren't one of the children. You're not an Israelite. You were not part of the Abrahamic priestly Davidic covenants. This is not for you. In fact, all those things and the salvation and God's chosen people were the Israelites, and we were outside the covenants. Remember that. Remember your place and know what you are as Gentiles with no hope, without God in the world. And here we go with the, the big butt again. But now, in Christ Jesus... You, who were formerly far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. He is describing the church here. Breaking down the barrier, bringing Gentiles and Jews together into one body um, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of the commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. This is the church. This is what God has been doing ever since Acts 2. This is what you and I live in. This is what we experience. When we say we are the church, this is the work that God is doing right now. By it, having put to death the enmity, he came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, talking about Gentiles and Jews. Uh, for, for through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, all those things we said earlier, to the covenants, to the promises of God, uh, to the, the family of God, but we are now fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building is being fitted together Uh, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God and of the Spirit. This is awesome. Now there's a lot of, he's quoting from Isaiah 57 in there. Uh, This is stuff in the Old Testament that was told to us, but people just didn't get. They didn't see. Even the apostles, when he was describing this stuff, it just didn't click. There are Old Testament passages of Assyrians and Egyptians and all these different people coming to Christ, having uh, praising the Lord uh, of, of different nations and different tongues, uh, uh, proclaiming praise to him and, and bowing down before him. But nobody saw this coming, this whole church thing. Now, God has always known about this time. Uh, this whole cr- church thing he foretold in the Scripture But now it is known. At this time when he wrote this in Ephesians, they knew, they experienced, they have understood the church by experience. And you and I, again, in 2014, understand uh, this church by experience. And Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, again, talking to uh, Gentiles, talking to the church, says that we are servants of a new covenant. All right? So the question that comes to mind still to me is this. Why does Israel not partake of the new covenant 
that they were promised? Why is the church proclaiming to have the forgiveness of sins and the spirit within? And why does the church not fully partake or experience the new covenant like God swore? That we don't sin again, that we are fully follow him, that we know him as he fully knows us, and we walk with him consistently all the time, faithfully, without falling away. Um, and I think the answer to that comes in Romans 11. So flip there, and that's, no more flipping. You're done. Go to Romans 11. And this, this, is, this is the awesome part. So we got the new covenant. God has sworn that he will forgive sins. God has sworn that he will put his spirit, his word, his law in the hearts of his people, that all of Israel uh, will be saved, all these different things, that, that, again, they will sin no more and all that stuff. Now we got this thing he's doing called the church, where the church is experiencing these promises a little bit, but not fully, but we are experiencing these promises. And like I said, the question is, why? And Paul answers that in Romans 11, or God answers that in Romans 11. And he basically tells us what the church's purpose is and why we are partaking of these new covenant promises, okay? And I, the reason I want to talk about this, and the reason I thought it would be neat to talk about this, first and foremost, because talking to my sixth graders over at Cherokee, I mean, you know, when you teach something, that's when it solidifies in your mind. You're just like, whoa. You know, you went all through seminary, and you've read it a thousand times, but then you got to say it to somebody, and it just clicks. And you're like, that's what he meant, you know? So <laughs> so it's, it's more for me than you. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but... Uh, but, but it's good to understand why we are here, what this church thing is, why we are part of this church. Uh, because, like I said, first and foremost, it, it brings you to a humble place. Secondly, it lets you in on God's plan, lets you understand what he's doing so that you walk appropriately, pray appropriately, and have the right vision on what's coming and your purpose on this earth. So Romans 11, uh, I'm going to tell you three reasons God has created his church. Um, and uh, let's read first, and then I'll, I'll tell you the reason number one. Actually, I'll just go ahead and tell you reason number one. God has created the church as a judgment against Israel's rejection of him. We as the church are the church and exist as the church in judgment of Israel. We are a living judgment against the nation of Israel. Read with me in Romans 11. Starting in verse 1, he says, I say then, as God rejected his people, maybe I should tell you a little background. Romans 9, 10, he's talking about Israel. God has not rejected his people. He's praying for Israel, hoping that all of Israel is saved. And he, he even talks about these covenants. And, and then uh, he asks this question, I say, as God, uh, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. This is a strong negation. He just says, no, 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 no. God has not rejected his people. For I too, Paul says, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. And God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. Uh, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. And I alone am left. And they are seeking my life. And this is after Elijah did the whole prophets of Baal thing. And then he flees out to the, the wilderness. And he's terrified. He's on the mountain of God. And he's just going like, look, I'm the only one left. And God goes, no, no, you're not the only one. Verse 4, he says, but, but what was the divine response to Elijah? He says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed their knee to Baal. Paul says, in the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant, according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of work. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So first and foremost, God has not rejected his people. God always has his remnant. They are out there. There are Israeli Jewish people that believe in Christ as their Messiah. There always have been. There always will be. The remnant is alive. It always is alive. And it's alive today. That's the first thing Paul says. Verse 7, he says, What then? What Israel is seeking, it is not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained, the rest were hardened. So here's an explanation of what's happening with the nation of Israel. Those who were chosen and those who are his, they're out there, and the remnant is alive. But the rest were hardened because of their rejection of the Messiah, because of their unbelief. So this is an explanation of why there's no land, there's no nation, there's no throne, there's no kingdom right now that you can look at in 2014. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes uh, to see not, ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. So Paul says this. He says, I say then, did, did, uh, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? So in other words, he says, okay, so has, has the nation as a whole stumbled to the point of, of falling away completely? He says, may it never be. No, 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 no. Again, there's still a remnant, but the promises are still there. The covenants are still there. And here's the answer. 
But by their transgression, because of Israel's transgression, their rejection of the Messiah, um, uh, salvation has now come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. This is the first, the first reason for the church. God is now bringing salvation to the Gentiles through this entity he calls the church all throughout the world in many tongues and many nations. He is drawing in people that are outside of these covenant promises into his kingdom, grafting them in to provoke Israel to jealousy and anger so that they will repent. Uh, God, God, does, God does things like this uh, often. It's not the only time God does things to provoke or God does something out of judgment. Parables, when Jesus began speaking in parables, those are a judgment. Uh, Jesus, when, when his disciples asked, he's out of nowhere. In Matthew 13, he starts speaking in parables. You know, he's, he was telling about the kingdom, all this stuff, repent, the kingdom is at hand. And all of a sudden, he's like, a farmer's walking along and throwing seeds around. And the disciples are like, what? And then they, they say, why, why are you speaking in parables? And he says, you know, for you guys who can hear, these tell you more about the kingdom. They explain more things, and you're able to understand these things. But for those who will not listen, for those who have a hardened heart, uh, even, even the truths now I'm going to speak in parables so they will not hear. So parables were a judgment to the Jews who were in the process of rejecting him. Tongues were a sign of judgment against the Israelites. It was exemplified in Acts 2 and explained in 1 Corinthians 14. An awesome gift given to the early church to spread the gospel through all these nations in, in languages they didn't even speak. And at the same time, a judgment against the Hebrew people who should be hearing and, and recognizing the Messiah now these people are speaking in other languages and going out in other, other tongues and other languages. So parables are a judgment against Israel. Tongues were a judgment against Israel. And the church itself exists as a judgment against Israel. So why does God want to provoke Israel to jealousy through means of the church? Well, keep going. Verse 12, he says, Now, if their transgression, so their rejection of God, their, their sin, their continual transgression means riches for the world, which it is for you and I, right? Being in the church, we are now experiencing these promises, being forgiven of sin. God is seeking us out from all over the place. If their rejection means riches for us, um, and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I am, uh, but I am speaking to you who are Gentiles inasmuch then as I'm an apostle of Gentiles. I magnify my ministry, Paul says, if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is reconciliation of the world, which is what's happening right now, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? That's the reason. When Israel repents and recognizes Christ as their Messiah and their King, he returns. This is prophecy. This is what the Bible says. And when he returns, all the things he has sworn from Genesis 3.15 up until now and, and the future all happen. I mean, he gathers his people together. They are made righteous and holy without sin. They follow him. The spirit of God, the word, the law is in their hearts. They walk with him in obedience. They're in the land. They're exalted. They're lifted above the nations. Everyone comes to Israel. They are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. All kings come and bow down before the king, Jesus Christ, who rules in peace. There's peace in the animal kingdom. There's peace in the human world. There's true peace. The people follow after them. I mean, or after him. I mean, we're talking about everything we long and hope for. And eventually sin is done away with forever where there's no even remembrance of sin forevermore. And he makes new heavens and new earth and we live forever with him. Awesome. All right? So, so right now he's provoking them to jealousy through you and I in this church because we are partaking of this new covenant so that they will repent and fulfillment of all of these things happen. Isn't that neat? And at the same time, so, so sad, right? Um. Uh, so, what does this mean for us now? Uh, I, I, I kind of skipped some stuff, but that's probably good. Reason number two, okay? Here's reason number two. The church is there to provoke Israel to jealousy. Reason number two is to show grace and love and affection for all people. Don't miss that part. Uh, verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, talking about the Israelites, uh, you and you being a wild olive were grafted in, talking to the Gentiles. So, if you know anything about plant grafting, you can graft, you know, things together. I, th I think I told my students, like, when we were in California, there's these two trees at this uh, one house that grew up on both sides of the sidewalk, and somehow they grafted the trees together, so they grew together at the top, and it made, like, an arch over the, so it's like, a tree came out of the ground, and then they grafted them together. I don't know how that works. 
any of you here plant grafters? We don't really care. But you can graft, you can graft, <laughs> you can graft like orange branches into apple trees, I've heard, and all this different stuff. So anyway, I am getting off subject here. We're talking about grafting. The reason I had to explain that to my sixth graders is because they were thinking about graphing, like uh, the X component is number two and then Y. And, and I was like, not graphing. Like you're not grafted, grafted into a kingdom. You're grafted. <laughs> um, anyway. <laughs> So we, being a wild olive branch, have been grafted in to this olive tree, into the kingdom, among them, and we, we becoming partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree of Jesus Christ. Uh, so, he says in verse 18, do not be arrogant towards the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that uh, it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right, they were. Uh, broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. So do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold, then, the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, talking of the Jews. For God is able to graft them in again. Uh, For if you were cut off from what is by nature, a wild olive tree, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, into his kingdom. How much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? It's a, it's a metaphor, it's a story, but it's basically telling you, do not be arrogant, do not be conceited. God is showing love, affection, and grace for Gentiles all over the world, grafting them into his kingdom. And that is awesome. But just stop right there, and don't get arrogant, and don't be proud of, of your salvation, be thankful and rejoice in the fact that God is doing this work through the church and that you experience this right now in 2014. Like I said, uh, in the Bible, I mean, you see the Gentile Seraphonician woman, she got it uh, when Jesus told her, let the children be satisfied first, for it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. You know, she could have been like, dogs, who are you calling dog? I ain't no dog. I'm a, you know, but she didn't say that. She said, she answered him and said to him, yes, Lord, yes, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. She got it. Yeah, I'm a Gentile. I am a dog. I'm not one of your children. I'm not an Israelite. I know I'm outside of your kingdom, but the crumbs are good enough for me. Just the crumbs will suffice. I mean, that's where, you got, that's where we have to be. And just like James says, faith without works is dead. Do not be so presumptuous or arrogant, thinking that we are special, Gentiles, the church, that we are above reproach or, uh, only because we profess to be in the church. I mean, that's what Israel did. John the Baptist came rebuking them, saying, don't suppose that you can say to yourself, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you uh, that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So let us not ever be proud, ever be arrogant, ever be presumptuous in our salvation, thinking that we in and of ourselves, for some reason, are better than Israel. And that is why God is doing this church thing. God is doing this church thing in judgment against them and in love and affection for you and I. So let it be. And then reason number three uh, in, verse, uh, in chapter, uh, uh, chapter 11, 25 and 26, the church was created for the salvation of Israel. The church is created for the salvation of Israel, not only in judgment against them, but also for their salvation. These are the best verses. He says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until, there's an end, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And so, all of Israel will be saved. And then he just goes into all these prophecies. Just as written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. In other words, everything he swore to them in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, like we started with, will absolutely happen when they repent, when they are provoked to repentance through jealousy and anger of us partaking of these new covenant promises. And at that point, everything he's sworn is going to happen. It is coming. Salvation comes. From the standpoint of the gospel, verse 28 says, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they, Israel, are beloved for the sake of their fathers. For the gifts, listen to this, guys, and the calling of God are irrevocable. God is going to do everything he swore that he would do for the Israelites. Everything. 
Every last thing that he swore it by covenant that he would do for his people, for his nation, he will do. They're absolutely irrevocable. God will not go back on his word. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of Israel's disobedience, so these also have now been disobedient. That because uh, of the mercy shown to you, they also uh, may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. Um, Oh, like I said, the church was created for the salvation of Israel. When every last Gentile whom God has ordained to be part of his kingdom, every last little branch has been grafted into his kingdom, the, the church will be done. When, when, when all of us are made heirs, all of his children are brought in uh, to, um, uh, to his kingdom, and every last one is saved, the church will be done, its purpose will be fulfilled. Uh, this is what theologically we call the rapture, as the church is taken and then you have the tribulation. The church has a purpose. The church ends. When the purpose is done, when Israel is brought to that point through the tribulation and through the provocation of the church to repentance, and then Israel will fully partake of the new covenant. God will fully complete every last promise he has made to his people. All the earth will be blessed through the offspring of Abraham, through the Israelites. You and I will be part of that as children of God that are grafted into his kingdom now during this church age. So we must rejoice Think about the blessing. Think about the fact that you were born in 2014 during a time because of Israel's rejection that God, through his spirit and through people, through his church, is, is, is bringing us in from all over the world. What an amazing time to live in. The fact that you were born in 2014 AD and not BC back when Israel wasn't doing their job, you know, and you would be stuck over here in the United States of America. And I mean, I know God was doing his work wherever he wanted to do his work, but the church wasn't there. I mean, what an amazing, amazing privilege and testimony is that we live when we live. So what is the application to us then? There's three things I want us to get out of this. First and foremost, we must cultivate humility in our own estimation of ourselves and of our place in history. Like I said, we exist in a time when God's grace is being poured out to Gentiles through the church, and we can be partakers of that. Many in this room are partakers of that. And that is an amazing, amazing blessing. I hear people all the time be like, man, I just wish I could have lived in Jesus' day. And I'm like, no, you don't. Like, right now is when you want to live. I mean, right now is, is way better than that. The fact that you can be part of this, and the Holy Spirit is working through his church. And again, in our own estimation of ourselves, remember that we are the dogs feeding off the children's bread. Remember your place and rejoice. Even the crumbs will suffice. We're partaking of this new covenant. But literally, it is, it is the crumbs of the covenant. I mean, one day you'll experience it fully, and it will be so much better. And remember, there is no such thing as a proud Christian. Those don't go hand in hand. There is no proud Christian. Number two, we must cultivate a love for and a prayerful pursuit of Israel. You've got to remember what you're created for and why we're here. Just like Paul said before what we read in Romans 10, Brethren, my heart's desire, my prayer to God is for them and for their salvation. If you understand what the salvation of Israel means for the world and for you, we should be praying for their, their, their brokenness and their repentance and their salvation every day of our lives. May we provoke them to jealousy and anger so that they repent and come to the Lord. And, and, and know at the same time, God still is preserving his remnant. They are out there. Uh, pray for the accept, their acceptance of the King and the Messiah because when they do that, he returns and he sits on his throne. And he reigns in peace. We have eternal life. Their repentance means fulfillment of all of God's covenants in his word. So don't forget that and pray for them. And number three, we must put to death the arrogance or the presumptuous belief that we have earned or that we deserve or that we have warranted salvation by any means in and of ourselves at all. Do not think just because you should go to church that you are part of the church. We talked about that already, right? The Israelites did that. Don't be presumptuous and just think, well, I'm part of the church. I go to church. The church is God's chosen people. The church are those who have the spirit of God dwelling in them, who have the forgiveness of sins, and they walk in the way that Jesus walked. Uh, Remember that God cut away false Israel, and he will do the same thing for the false church. And with this arrogance and presumptuous belief, do not be so arrogant or presumptuous to think that God has forsaken his people Israel forever. You've got to think about the implications. I mean, if he's forsaken Israel forever, and he forsook them because of their sin, 
But what makes you think that you can stand on your own righteousness and he won't forsake you for your sin as well? When do you reach that point of being totally forsaken and God goes back on his word and his promises? Also, if he forsook his promises and his covenants to his people Israel, what makes you think he'll uphold his word to you for the forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit within, especially being Gentiles grafted into his kingdom? Don't ever be presumptuous in our salvation. Don't ever think that we're better than Israel. Don't ever think that the church has in some way replaced Israel forever and that God is done with his people because the implications of that are huge. We are vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory, as Paul said. God has not forsaken his covenants. God is simply accomplishing the fulfillment of all of his covenants currently through his church. And we play a key role in the repentance and the exaltation of Israel, his own possession, his kingdom of priests, his holy nation, and the coming reign of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, as king of all the earth. As Paul ends Romans 11, 33 to 36, we end the same way tonight. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace, for your mercy, for your love. As, as you said in Ephesians, that, that even while we were sinners, even while we were Gentiles, even while we were outside of the covenants, the commonwealth of Israel, outside the promises of God, outside of the church, that you loved us enough to send your Son to be the propitiation for our sins, to pay the wrath that we deserve on the cross so that we could have his righteousness, his blamelessness, so that we could be partakers of these new covenant promises, that we could experience, even in this life, the forgiveness of sin and the Holy Spirit within us, knowing full well that the fulfillment of the new covenant will mean that we know you fully, as you fully know us, that we walk in you, that we have your law and your word written within us, that your spirit dwells within us, and that we never sin again, the same things that you promised to the nation Israel, we are now grafted into these promises and we are so thankful that you're using this thing called the church right now to draw in people from all over the world, your remnant and Gentiles, into the church. And Lord, we pray. Uh, we pray that through the church that you would bring the nation of Israel to repentance. That you would provoke them to jealousy as they see us partaking of a covenant you made to them and that they would repent. They would see that you are, that, that Christ is the Messiah. That their king has come. And that those who are believing in him are experiencing the promises that he swore he would do. And they would repent. And that you would return and you would sit on your throne. That you would establish your kingdom forever. That, that, that your house would be there forever. That the land, the nation, all those things would exist forever. That you would bring your people. That we would have eternal life. That, that you would reign in peace You'll do away with sin. You'll do away with all those who side with sin and with Satan and with death and with hell and cast all of that into the lake of fire that will one day live with you without sin forever. That we can read these promises, these truths in your word, knowing that every single one of them will come to fulfillment completely just as you have said. Lord, we pray for Israel. We pray for our own humility. We pray for anyone who is in this room who who is not truly part of your church, that they would know you as you know them, Father. They would repent of their sins and recognize that Jesus Christ is our only salvation. And we pray all these things in your holy name. Amen.